0: Now, oh, I got 15 people wanting how the hell he make it out. Care this bucket of pain, and I got 18 dollars to my motherfucking name. And it's not a life, it's a game. And I'm a two-ton wrecking ball filled with pain. And I got a lot to say, Oh, when I'm still feeling good from yesterday, so stand up if you're right on the crowd. Get down, make the doctor proud. Stay Every time I catch a case, I wouldn't pop off so much. At the lid, I have get out of jail car, pop, cool, ready to go. And then I pay my tax and bail money, cause I'm a tax paying fool. So we gotta stand up if you're out on- No, he's got no father. Just trying to make it through this old hard, hard winter. Toast freezing, no reason. He's got no dinner. He's a product of the music, a product of his time, a product of addiction in a very long line. Users and abusers, who just couldn't keep it straight. Oh man, I wish I didn't know. I'm going
1: fuck is that wild stand up i don't know what they're talking about when they say we're 700 billion strong and we still don't know right from wrong <clears throat> 700 billion what uh they i don't know 7 billion people on the planet so it's not that <sighs> could be saying 700 million but then it's not americans right because there are what 300 and something million americans so i don't know what he's talking about but it's a fucking good song it's called stand up it's by the revivalists and the album is called men amongst mountains uh yeah so that's stand up this is an episode of roma i don't know fourteen, fifteen, something like that Uh, I get lost in the Romas, but uh, it's a Wednesday evening. I'm here alone, just cracked a beer, and um, I've been staring into this computer all day doing shit. Hey, big news, got a van. If you haven't heard the last episode of Tangentially Speaking, where I announced this big news, you're hearing it now. I finally got the van. It's a 2006 Dodge... Sprinter, Mercedes diesel engine. Uh, my new best friend forever, Oliver Thorpe, came up with me to uh, to look at it. Bought it in Lompoc, beautiful part of California. I hadn't been in before. I showed up at uh, you know to buy this used car with my own mechanic with me. I mean, how cool is that? That's I mean, that's like having a posse or something. Anyway, Oliver checked it out and it's in good shape. It's, uh, you know, not perfectly pristine on the outside, but I like that. People look at it and say, yeah, it's an old van. Let's go break into something else. Um, anyway, but it's sound mechanically, and uh, yeah, I got it at a pretty good price. And this weekend, Oliver and I are going to be installing things. We're going to put it in an awning and a water tank and um, some storage units. Under the bed, uh, some LED lighting, make it all cozy in the back. So anyway, that's happening. Got the van. Pretty cool. Uh, and I'll be ready to roll on that this summer. And I've been hearing from some of you inviting me to come and stay in your town, sleep in your driveway, have sex with your cat. I uh, appreciate all those offers. Uh, and, uh, you know, don't don't be shy about it. I I, you know, won't be able to visit everybody, but... Certainly would be cool to stop in and uh, have a friend in town and, you know, someone to show us around, me around, whoever I'm with at the time. I'll probably have some travel companions uh, coming along with me through part of the trip. Anyway, I'm going to read your emails, uh, some of your emails, but before I get into that, I wanted to read you something that I came across recently by Carl Jung. It's actually, it's funny the way I came across this too, so... Uh I was looking through a storage. I've got some shit in storage in Spain. I had it in Spain and took it out a few months ago. And there were some old journals that I had had when I was traveling. <clears throat> and um, I've got them, brought them back with me to California. And they've been sitting there. And these are like 25, 30 years old, some of them. And uh, I thought, well, I'll open it up and I'll, you know see maybe there's something in there that would be interesting to read on the podcast. And the first page... I came across this quote from Carl Jung. And I honestly, I I didn't get past the first page. Uh, It's amazing that this is something I wrote down my first trip to Asia. So this was like 87, 88, somewhere in there, mid to late 80s. Because I remember I took two books with me. Uh, This is when I left New York City after working in the Diamond District and I flew to New Delhi by way of Bangkok. I stopped in Bangkok for a couple days, then went on to New Delhi, one-way ticket. And um, you can hear about that kind of stuff in the, uh, which ones are they? The Tomas, the Tomas, yeah, the the talking out my ass where I tell travel stories. Uh, anyway, the uh, I took these two two books with me, two autobiographies, the autobiography of, Luis Buñuel, the surrealist Spanish filmmaker, who, interestingly enough, was good friends with the father of my good friend, Tal Ruspoli. Never would have believed 30 years ago that I would be good friends with somebody whose father hung out with uh, Luis Buñuel. If you don't know Luis Buñuel, his films are mind-blowing. Uh, especially when you think of when they were made in the thir- 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, some of his later films uh, star Catherine Deneuve, the great French beauty actress. Um, but his, uh, oh man, I mean, it's hard to even begin to describe Louis Bunuel. The first time I saw a Louis Bunuel film, I thought it was a documentary because it was called The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. I was in New York city traveling with my friend, Eric, uh, who was a a professor at the university where I was studying undergrad. He and I were good friends and he uh, had a friend who had an apartment in New York. His friend was out of town. He could use the apartment. So we drove down to New York city. It was one of the first times that I had really hung out in New York city. And, uh, so Eric was showing me around. Uh, he knew so much. I mean, he was a very smart guy. American Studies PhD, you know, all the history and who designed that building and, you know, the story behind this and that. Anyway, uh he said, "Well, let's let's see what films. There are always amazing films playing in New York." So he looked through and he said, oh, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, Louis Buñuel. Have you ever seen anything by him?" I said, "No, never, n- don't know." Oh, it's so amazing I said, well, whatever, Eric You know, you you just pick it You know, whatever whatever you want to see I'm down for it Okay, let's go see that So it was playing up near Columbia And we went up to a bar called the West End Which apparently is where the Beats used to hang out And the whole Beat movement sort of started I'm talking about Jack Kerouac and um, Allen Ginsberg And those people who were hanging in New York City in the 50s And the Beats were sort of I guess you'd say they were the precursors to the hippies, the beatniks. Um, uh, who's the other one? The guy who wrote Naked Lunch, uh, Burroughs was a beat. So, so they were sort of counterculture uh, intellectuals in the fifties. Which before it was cool to be counterculture. So they were real pioneers in some sense. And then the whole counterculture movement really took off in the sixties with the introduction of LSD and then the whole you know music thing and the sort of generation. The baby boom generation that moved through American culture like a rat through a snake, as they say, this big bulge of young people moving through the culture, uh, sort of revolutionized things there. But the Beats were 10 years before all that happened. So anyway, they, were, they hung out in this bar called the, the West End, and we were there, and we were drinking some beer, and the movie was going to start in an hour, so it was a double feature was um, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie and Viridiana was the other film. And um, so I'm thinking we're going to go see this documentary. And Eric says, we're in the bar drinking beer, and Eric says, oh, it's too bad we don't have some weed. It would be great to be stoned for this. I said, well, yeah, I don't have any weed. Um, Oh, I've got some acid in my wallet, though. (laughs) And he looks at me like... What? I said yeah, I I just have this acid in my wallet. Oh my god, we shouldn't do that. Well, I don't know. Whatever. I'm just telling you I've got this acid in my wallet. Oh my god. Oh, but that would be amazing. Oh, maybe you should Oh, we should, maybe we shouldn't. So, I should tell you part of my role in that friendship was that I uh sensed what he wanted to do and seduced him into doing it against his own better judgment. I I guess that was the way the friendship worked in some levels. Uh, I was the free spirit, the fearless one. He was the, you know, guy who was responsible and had always done his homework and was trying to please his parents and, you know, had tenure and, uh, you know, he made it, he made it. And now he had tenure, he couldn't get fired. And I'm like, so start taking drugs and doing crazy shit, man. Nobody can fire you. Fuck. Um, Anyway, so long story not so long. We ended up taking the acid and going to this movie. And I'm sitting there. The movie starts and I'm starting to trip really hard. And it's it's a fucking old movie in black and white. And I'm thinking, Jesus, this is going to be boring as fuck, man. And I'm tripping really hard. And, and the lights are go down and it's crowded. And I put my hands on my knees. And so I have this feeling like, wait a minute did I just put my hands on my knees or did I put my hands on someone else's knees? You know, and it's that kind of thing. Like, did I just put my hand on the guy, you know, the stranger next to me on his knee or, or wait, did he put his hand on my knee? Like, you know, that's how hard I was chirping. Anyway, the movie starts first scene in the film is a bunch of fancy people are arriving for a party, a dinner party. And, The host and the hostess of the party, who are very wealthy, they have people downstairs, maids and cooks and all that, who are greeting the guests as they arrive. The people are upstairs getting dressed, and the woman decides she needs to fuck before the party. She gets, she's horny. And the guy is like, We can't fuck before the party. The guests are already arriving. I think I, the bishop is here and whatever. And the woman's like, No, I gotta fuck. And this is all in French. Being, I'm reading subtitles, and then they, you see them crawling out the window, and then it cuts to them walking into the party from like the kitchen or something, and greeting their guests. And it's the bishop and the mayor, and you know all these fancy the general and all these fancy, very high class people, and the the couple are walking around saying hello and oh it's so lovely to see you and being very mannered and high class and then the camera sort of spins behind the woman and you see she's got all these weeds in her hair and clumps of dirt and the back her back's all dirty where she'd been lying in the dirt fucking what and then and then you know the the waiters are going around with the hors d'oeuvres these platters of fancy hors d'oeuvres and the camera cuts in close and you see The cracker, it's a cracker with a piece of bloody raw meat on the cracker and the blood ruling down the cracker. And I'm like, what the fuck am I watching here? Well, that was my introduction to surrealism. Uh, The movie is one of the strangest movies you'll ever seen, whether you're tripping or not. I do not recommend tripping, but, you know, if you're feeling really, you know, like you want to go heroic, you can can trip. Anyway, the next, the other autobiography I took with me on this trip to Asia was the autobiography of Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychiatrist, mystic, artist, intellectual, uh, one of my favorite thinkers of all time. And in the first page of this journal that I kept on that trip, there's this extended quote from Carl Jung. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to read the whole fucking thing. It's a paragraph. It'll take a minute, but... I think it's worth it. Anyway, the, the name of his autobiography is Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Beautiful book. Jung says, Our souls as well as our bodies are composed of individual elements which were already present in the ranks of our ancestors. You can see what this is going to be. This is amazing because this is really what I've been working on in Civilized to Death for fucking years now but it's right here it's right here in Carl Jung writing at the end of the 19th century in my journal from 30 years ago our souls as well as our bodies are composed of individual elements which were all already present in the ranks of our ancestors the quote newness unquote in the individual psyche is an endlessly varied recombination of age-old components Body and soul, therefore, have an intensely historical character and find no proper place in what is new and things that have just come into being. This is like Louis C.K.'s thing, right? These days, everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. Jung's talking about why. Back to Jung. That is to say, our ancestral components are only partly at home in such things. We are very far from having finished completely with the Middle Ages, classical antiquity, and primitivity, as our modern psyches pretend. Nevertheless, we have plunged down a cataract of progress which sweeps us on into the future with ever wilder violence the farther it takes us from our roots. Once the past has been breached, It is usually annihilated, and there is no stopping the forward motion. But it is precisely the loss of connection with the past, our uprootedness, which has given rise to the discontents of civilization, and to such a flurry and haste that we live more in the future and its chimerical promises of a golden age than in the present, with which our whole evolutionary background has not yet caught up. We rush impetuously into novelty, driven by a mounting sense of insufficiency, dissatisfaction, and restlessness. We no longer live on what we have, but on promises, no longer in the light of the present day, but in the darkness of the future, which we expect will at last bring the proper sunrise. Have you ever noticed that? How the promises of progress are always just around the corner what is it now oh we're gonna live forever oh yeah by the time you get old people are gonna to live to be 200 oh yeah we've doubled the human lifespan we're gonna double it again and again and again you're gonna have so much free time oh you can't imagine this new technology is gonna make life so easy for you you <laughs> Back to Jung, we refuse to recognize that everything better is purchased at the price of something worse. That, for example, the hope of greater freedom is canceled out by increased enslavement to the state. Not to speak of the terrible perils to which the most brilliant discoveries of science expose us. The less we understand what our fathers and forefathers sought, the less we understand ourselves. And thus, we help, with all our might, to rob the individual of his roots and his guiding instincts so that he becomes a particle in the mass, ruled only by what Nietzsche called the spirit of gravity. Reforms by advances, that is, by new methods or gadgets, are of course impressive at first, but in the long run they are dubious and, in any case, dearly paid for. They by no means increase the contentment or happiness of people on the whole. Mostly, they are deceptive sweetenings of existence, like speedier communications, which unpleasantly accelerate the tempo of life and leave us with less time than ever before. He wrote this in like 1900. All haste is of the devil, says Jung, as the old masters used to say. Reforms by retrogressions, on the other hand, are, as a rule, less expensive and, in addition, more lasting, for they return to the simpler, tried, and tested ways of the past. That's from Memories, Dreams, and Reflections by Carl Jung. Yeah. This little ditty is called Red-Handed. It's by Obadiah Parker, who's the dude, the bearded dude who lives in, I think, I don't know, Colorado maybe or Arizona. Anyway, he's the guy who did the cover of Hey Ya by OutKast. That really expressed the spirit of that song so much better than OutKast did. Uh, it went incredibly viral. And uh, I have a friend who who goes down to spring training Every year, and she's seen him a couple times and spoken with him and apparently after that happened his that song went you know I think it's probably got a hundred million views or something by now on youtube um he uh got a lot of opportunities to you know go to go to the big time kid, come on, come to the big time anyway, he wasn't interested, he's pretty happy with his life, the way it is apparently, so good for Obadiah Parker if that's true. Uh, and this song is Red Handed. It's from an album called The Siren and the Saint. And I will be back with a little more ranting in just a moment. The
2: first time that I saw her, she- Hotter than a gun. Rhythms were enchanting, she was handy with her drum. She led me to the bedroom to step into the sun. I was too young to know better than what she would become. Oh. By moonlight, from nothing she appeared, and led me ever deeper into places I once feared. My skin burned white with deception, all my fingertips were seared, and as I lied the rabbit, was she up and disappeared? the daylight, I hear her in the sky, I know just where to seize her or to submit between her thighs, she knows when I'm keeping secrets and she knows when I can't deny, her promises of kisses, oh, they're always there.
1: Obadiah Parker, red-handed. Here's an email from a guy. Uh, He says, my question concerns gender role expectations. I'm 38 and gradually learning to be comfortable in my own skin. That's right. That's the bad news for all you 20-somethings out there. You think you're going to have it all worked out in another five or ten years? (laughs) You know, the thing about getting... Uh, older is you realize there are no adults when you 're a kid you you look around and you say oh they all they 've got it all figured out someday i 'll be like them and then you get to be their age and you realize oh shit they don 't figure they don 't they don 't know what it's like, so maybe you know when i 'm another you know when i 'm in my forties i 'll have it figured out yeah that 's when it is and then oh, then you get there and it 's like yeah they don 't have it figured out either and like you just sort of you move up these progressive stages in life, and you realize that nobody has it all fucking figured out, no matter how old they are. Uh, You know, the beauty is that as you get older, you realize that nobody has it figured out. I think that's, you know, that's about it. That's, that's, That's all there is. Anyway, so this guy's 38, and he's gradually learning to be comfortable in his own skin. So that's something, right? That's not having it all figured out, but at least you're comfortable with what you are uh, I guess there's a wisdom in that. So good. Okay. In many ways, I consider myself pretty masculine, whatever that means, but in other ways, not. I beat myself up a lot for not being decisive. For example, I'm good at seeing lots of options, but bad at making decisions. Sometimes men are supposed to be decisive, right? I'm a good conversationalist and feel very comfortable talking to women, but taking the initiative and breaking the ice is often a challenge. Sometimes I would like a woman to approach me to take the initiative, but I realize there are women out there who might want to take the initiative but feel like they would be shamed for acting unladylike. Pretty much every time a lady has broken the ice with me at a coffee shop or bar or whatever, I found it to be very invigorating and comfortable. Uh So I guess the point is, uh, taking the lead, being decisive, making the first move, knowing exactly where a relationship should go. These are exhausting for me. I some, it sometimes seems our society has a very clear and rigid but unwritten relationship choreography. It works for some people, but I wonder how many people are like me and find it too often confining and awkward. What do you think? If you haven't already, I wonder if you might dev- devote some time during a podcast to address gender role expectations and how they help and hurt us. Yeah. Okay, so let's address this. Having uh, clearly stated that I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, right? I, I, there, should be a, there should be like a pre-recorded thing I put at the beginning of every one of these. I don't know. Uh, anyway, you're asking my opinion. Here it is. Uh, I think America is totally fucked when it comes to sexuality. Totally. And ironically, part of that is because we are simultaneously too rigid in our expectations of gender roles and also too critical of conventional expectations in gender roles. Yeah, I've backed myself into a corner here. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, I guess what I mean is that in American culture doesn't seem to have a tolerance for nuance. I When I first, I may have talked about this before on the podcast, forgive me if I have, but when I first got to Spain, one of the things there were so many things I loved about Spain immediately. I just felt so at home there, even though I didn't speak the language at the time uh, you know so many things I didn't understand some so many weird cultural things that you know took me years to figure out and some of which I never figured out. but probably the thing I found the most confounding was this sense in spain that often i would ask a question and there was no clear answer and i i needed an answer so like the way people park like it's not clear if you're allowed to park here but people are parking there and are they going to get tickets i don't know i remember pulling up onto the ramblas one time in barcelona on my motorcycle and you know there were 100 motorcycles parked there and but there were no parking signs. And, you know, normally I would just park there and like, yeah, okay, there are motorcycles. I'll park here. Um, But there happened to be a cop standing there. So I'll, as I was parking my bike and I took off my helmet and there's this cop standing there and we make eye contact. And I thought, well, I'll just be careful and I'll go talk to him. And I, so I said, "Uh, excuse me, is it cool to park my bike here? And he said, Uh, He said in Spanish, he said, uh, no, es es prohibido, pero bueno, normalmente te te damos la vista larga, which means uh, it's prohibited, but normally we overlook it. Now, that's not the kind of thing an American cop is ever going to say. I mean, you know, if he's a friend of yours, maybe, but they won't say it they might do it there there are things american cops will overlook right if you go a mile over this mile per hour over the speed limit normally they're not going to pull you over if you like sort of slow down and don't stop completely at a stop sign and there's no traffic you you have to be an asshole to give somebody a ticket for that it's happened it happens a lot but tell you what it happens a lot more than it happens in spain that's my point in spain if you're not bothering someone if you're not if you park right in the middle of the fucking sidewalk, of course you're going to get towed. But if you park sort of on the side and you're not blocking, and, you know, there, everything is contextual. Everything is conditional. And there's an incredible amount of tolerance for ambiguity in Spain. And in American society, there's very little tolerance for ambiguity. Now, that may be... I've thought about this a lot and I think it's probably because American society is newer and it's made up of so many different cultures that historically in the United States we've had to have very clear rules because in a place like Spain or Holland or France or these ancient cultures where People know what it means to be Spanish. They know what it means to be Dutch. There's a certain way of doing things that the French understand. And they haven't had a lot of immigration. Uh, They're getting it now, and this is one of the problems they're starting to run into. Um, Whereas the United States has always had a lot of immigration. And so we've had to codify behavior in a way because the new immigrants coming in, are coming in from... Europe from Latin America from Asia or whatever they've all got their own cultural rules and ways of doing things So we've had to have like a a rule book that everyone can read and say look here This is the rule you park here. You don't park there I don't care what you do in Vietnam or China or Spain or Mexico or wherever the fuck you come from This is the way it's done here And if you don't follow that rule, nobody's going to be understanding you're going to get a ticket and you're going to you know Whatever pay the consequence So it's a very sort of rules are rules society, whereas these older societies are more like, yeah, come on, we all know how it works here, you know? Uh, And I think where this ties into sexuality is that I think we're very um, critical of right now, particularly in the last 15 or 20 years, we're very critical of conventional expectations of gender norms and things like that to the point where people are lost. So it it becomes, you know, cisgender becomes an insult. Um, It's cooler to be queer than it is to be you know conventional conventional is a negative um and so i think that that what ends up happening is that it's it's a positive in the sense that we're questioning these gender norms and that's important because it opens up the possibility to behave in ways that are more natural to you if the gender norms don't fit you which they don't a certain amount of people um But the problem is that because we're kind of rigid about it, it becomes this either or thing. And then people who do follow the gender norms or feel comfortable with the gender norms are considered oppressive or considered the enemy or, you know, breeders or whatever. And so, you know, it's like if, if you're white, you're a racist, you know, automatically, or, you know, if whatever, if you're black, you hate white people like there's, yeah, I, I there's all this sort of debates going on about race, and, and we're not acknowledging that, you know, a lot of the people who are engaging in these debates are of mixed race themselves, like Obama or Jordan Peele, who I was just listening to a few hours ago talking about race. I mean, he's mixed race. Obama's mixed race. They're not black, you know, in, in the conventional sense of the word, or at least in a sort of they are in the conventional sense, but not in a, a strict sense and also what is white you know i mean is jewish white is uh, is chinese white uh, it, it's all very it's all very um ambiguous and because in america we have this sort of absolutist approach to things uh, it gets very confusing so uh to to deal with this guy's email look i think it's totally cool that you are recognizing who you are. And I think the whole key to this email was in that first sentence where he said, I'm 38 and gradually learning to be comfortable in my own skin. And part of that is to recognize like, this is the way I am. This is what I'm into. This is what I'm not into. This is what I'm comfortable with. This is what I'm not comfortable with. So, I think that's totally cool, man. I think that's good. I think you're, this is growth. This is what you're experiencing right here is growth. This is coming to a consciousness of who you are and what works for you. And that's totally cool. And if that means, you know, whatever it means, not having kids, it means being gay, being straight, being bi, being straight, but, you know, liking to hook up with a dude every once in a while or whatever it is, that's what it is. And, you know, don't wait for the culture to catch up with you. That's my advice. Be who you are and um, be open about it. Be unashamed about it. Because the problem with this sort of unconventional gender identity or or gender behavior that he's talking about is, and at least maybe this is what I'm reading into it, is that it's, kind of hard for him to uh, meet a woman uh, because she's the women are expecting a more conventional approach right and this guy lives in the midwest in a in a pretty conventional place so um now here's the good news women are amazing women are wonderful uh And you are going to be amazed at how many women are open to who you are, open to what you need, open to whatever kinks and strangenesses and unconventional facets there are to your personality. But you're not going to meet those women as long as you're pretending, as long as you're walking around in a disguise of normalcy. That's the problem. you got to be comfortable in your own skin. And so that's the importance of going through the process that he's talking about here. The next stage, once you know yourself is to don't hide that, to be open about that, to be clear about that. Um, you know, one of the best things you can do if you're afraid of public speaking is when you're standing there on stage and everybody's looking at you to say out loud, wow, am I nervous right now? And people laugh and they'll clap and they'll support you because they know they'd be nervous there too. They'd be terrified. So my advice is keep doing what you're doing, man. You're doing great. You know who you are. You're able to articulate it. You're able to understand how it differs from some of what's expected of you. Now just stop being afraid of it. Stop being sheepish about it. You are who you are. And The sooner you wear that comfortably and openly and freely, uh, the easier it gets for the kind of women who you're going to connect with to find you. Because they're not looking for conventional dudes. They're looking for dudes who've thought this shit through. They're looking for people who are more advanced. And you are. So good for you. Okay, next one. Uh, Let's see. Uh, 21 years old, just got accepted into a prestigious college for a pre-med degree. My parents and friends are all very proud of me, but deep down I feel hesitant to accept. Two people very close to me have died in the last year, and honestly, it's made me view life as very fragile and temporary. If I accept this uh, position at school, I feel like part of me will be accepting a generic version of life, albeit I'll have a degree of safety if I don't accept I would travel the world get to know myself but risk not having that safety I don't know what to do I'm pressured to accept because that's what we're told to do but is this the best thing to do for myself uh okay well you're 21 and you've been accepted to a prestigious college for pre-med degree what's interesting is that in this brief message you don't say anything about why you want to study medicine. Is it just for the security? Is it just because you were good in biology and that seemed the thing to do? Uh, Is it because your father and your grandfather and your grandmother and your mother were all doctors and you're expected to follow in their footsteps? Uh, One of the people who's close to the person who wrote this committed suicide and you don't say anything about that and how that could play into this did that person was that person trying to live a life that wasn't right for him do you think is that what led to the suicide is that what's leading you to think about these things so deeply i mean having anyone close to you commit suicide is going to provoke a lot of soul searching but i wonder what the circumstances were of that um anyway 21. Man, the thing is, when you're 21, everything feels so fucking important and serious. And I guess it is in some ways, but I can tell you from the distance of 55, it's like a 12-year-old freaking out because their friends at school are, you know, didn't invite them to do whatever the birthday party or something. It's, and I do, I'm certainly don't mean to trivialize what you're going through. What I'm trying to say is that it feels really fucking important right now, but it isn't because you're at the beginning of a long road And you choose that road. You choose where that road takes you. It's not even, it's the wrong metaphor. You're not at the beginning of a road. You're at the beginning of a journey. And you are going to choose what roads that journey goes down. And that's what you're facing here. I can't tell you what to do. Um because I, I don't know what led you to write this email the way you did, but you didn't mention anything about medicine. That makes me think maybe medicine isn't a passion for you. Maybe it's a job. If that's the case, probably the wrong job, especially in 21st century America. Um, but if it's not the wrong job, if or maybe you're not sure whether it's the wrong job, then why not try to take a couple of years and do something that's going to help you in the journey, the the sort of soul-searching journey that you're interested in. And that's also going to have, that's going to look really good <clears throat> on an application to college or medical school or whatever, uh, down the road. Um, but see, it's strange because you say you're 21 and you just got accepted into a prestigious college for a pre-med degree. That's an undergraduate degree, which I would think you'd be 18 when you were going to do that. So I don't know where those three years went, or if I'm misreading this and you've already done your undergrad and this is some sort of post graduate me- pre med thing i, I don 't know what that is, but i mean because I- i'm more hesitant to suggest that you just sort of blow off college uh, undergraduate than I am to suggest taking a break after uh, your undergraduate degree, but in any case, it sounds to me like you need some time, so there are things you can do that would satisfy both things. you could go and travel you can volunteer with um you know, uh, a medical group, non-profits that are helping refugees. You can uh, go help in a clinic in the third world. There's so many different volunteer things. If you just start Googling, you know, volunteer medical um, assistance, you're going to find thousands of opportunities there. Uh, I don't, you don't mention what kind of financial situation you're in, but if you can afford to pay your own, way, then that's gonna open up even more opportunities for you. So I uh it sounds to me like you need some time and with the kind of stuff that you're dealing with, uh it might adding to the pressure trying to, you know, go in and, and work real hard and focus when you haven't had a chance to process these uh very deep experiences that you've had in the last year or so uh could be a really bad A real bad idea, because then you go in, you freak out, you fail, you can't focus. And then that's going to be a lot harder to recover from than you just saying, hey, you know what, I got to deal with this shit. I'm going to take a year off and travel, or I'm going to go volunteer somewhere. I'm going to look into this and make sure that medicine's the the path I want to be going down, because that's a long path, and it's a hard one to get off once you've committed to it. I think it's time for a little music. What do you think, audience, silent audience that I can't see? There's no evidence of you anywhere. I can't smell you. I can't hear you. But I know you're there, lurking. Uh, This song is called Working For You. It's by Patrick Sweeney, and it's from the album Close To The Floor.
3: Have a shame to my life, because my wife's got to keep that job. I should be in an office hating life and drinking coffee Instead of staring out of my yard The world ain't made by a man in a van Scraping along like I do I feel a high power load pushing every hour Baby, is that working for you? Whoa, whoa, whoa Whoa, whoa, whoa Whoa, whoa, whoa Whoa, whoa, whoa whoa, 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 wohn a chance I get a hell on the band that do the band let us out on the rain You wanna cancel out What is this all about? We're the hundred miles away Try my places load upon it with my money Be like a fool Crumbing back, cause I'm courtesy and like Baby, how's that working for you? What? Whoa, whoa. I'm on my way to New York City, oh Lord, I'm trying, trying to get a message to you. Well, I need it working for me, instead of working against me, whatever me out like it do. A master drive, over before I sleep, three people in a room. System, law, system of survival Baby, is that working for you? Whoa, 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 whoa
1: Working for you. Well, I don't know. Here's a guy. This guy sounds really unhappy. Uh he's deeply insecure about twenty. Can't feel like I'm fall I can't help feeling like I'm falling behind already. I get insanely jealous over things. My friends getting better jobs, making more than I do, have better relationships and intimate relationships. Hell, I even get insecure over people being taller than me, even though I know rationally it's something biological it can't be changed uh yeah etc so his question is how do you deal with knowing that there are people who are superior to you in very tangible ways height income power or influence and not let it get to you um well i don't have to deal with that because there's nobody who is superior to me in any tangible way i am the tallest i am the richest I'm the most powerful and the most influential person in my in my life i I just don't let anyone better than me get anywhere near me <sighs> obviously that's a joke um, look you know i I don't know i don't I don't know the trick to that if there is a trick, but I do know that if you are if you feel that other people are superior to you, you are creating a force field around yourself that's just pulling shit toward you. You are creating such an ugly um frame around your life that nobody's gonna want to be with you nobody's gonna want to be anywhere near you and and you are gonna create the very thing that you're afraid of so i guess there are two things that i you know that this kind of thing makes me think of one is that danger is attracted to fear um i think we have the causality of Fear and danger backwards in most cases, I think that the vast majority of the negative things that happen to people happen because they 're expecting them to happen now i 'm not one of these people who says that everybody who gets cancer gets cancer because you know they didn 't clean their chakras or something um, there 's bad luck in the world there are, there are wonderful people who get hit by drunk drivers every day there are wonderful kind hearted people who, uh, you know, just have really shitty things happen to them. Um, There's no denying that. But most of the shitty things that happen to people, in my experience, uh, happen because those people are inviting that shittiness into their lives. So, you know, a lot of traffic accidents as i've just said are just pure bad luck in one way or another but you know i wonder what percentage of traffic accidents happen to people who are driving aggressively to people who are stressed out and distracted <clears throat> by their stress uh people who are you know going too fast because they're pissed off or stressed out or in a rush because they're you know, discombobulated in one way or another. Maybe traffic accidents aren't the best uh, example. I mean, I remember when I was traveling, there were people who were constantly stressed out about, uh, you know, t- don't drink the water and, you know, you brush, brushing their teeth in boiled bottled water and, just, you know, oh, is there, you know, every time they were eating something like, oh, is this safe? I don't know. where Where's this come from? And they would never eat street food anywhere. And they would just like constantly trying to protect themselves. And those are the people who are always fucking sick, you know, and I started out trying to protect myself. And then I looked around. It's like, Jesus, I mean, these cool people aren't dying You know, you get a little diarrhea, so the fuck, why, you get some diarrhea, you get over it. Um, And it's better to get some diarrhea than to be walking around the whole time worrying about everything. And um, so I sort of extrapolated from that, and I, I feel like that's one of the things about life that I learned when I was traveling, that a lot of times the more energy you spend in trying to defend yourself and protect yourself and to compare yourself and to compete, you're losing. You're always losing. You know, you stress out about not having friends. You're never going to have friends. Because people don't want to hang out with someone who's stressed out about whether or not they hang out with them. You know? Um, <clears throat> I was in a... Yeah, I don't know if this is a good example to tell you about. But, yeah, what the fuck. Uh, a long time ago, I was in a... Uh, A sexual situation with another guy and a woman and the guy was cool nice guy good friend of mine and the woman wanted to have this experience with two men and so we sort of arranged this thing and um, the woman was not that into It's like at the the end of the thing, he and I talked and he was like, man, she was she really she wanted to be with you. She didn't want to be with me. And he was really stressed out about it. And and I talked with her and she was like, look, it wasn't him. It's just like his energy was weird. I mean, he was like choreographing everything and he was like, you know, trying to control everything. And and so I tried to talk to him about it. It's like, man, it. It wasn't you, it was your it was your vibe, it was your energy. It's that you weren't like he was very conscious of of being rejected and that ended up causing him to be rejected. And if he were able to just chill out and not worry about shit and just let things develop organically and show that he was comfortable enough with himself To not be stressing about that, then everything would have gone much better for him. So it's one of these things where it's sort of like, you know, people always say you need to have money to make money. Well, uh, yeah, in a way, or you need to be able to act like you have money. And I think it's the same thing with confidence. I think that for young people who don't yet have Experience enough to feel confident or who weren't lucky enough to have sort of been <clears throat> inherited some confidence from having a very supportive family or uh, experiences when they were young that gave them that sense of confidence. I think, it, you know, if you're smart enough to think through these things, maybe you can just fake it for a while. Fake it till you make it. And what I mean by that is Don't act like someone who is desperate for approval, even if inside you feel like you are. Try to learn to act like someone who isn't desperate for approval. Learn to act confident, even if you're not feeling particularly confident. Now, normally, I'm all about authenticity and honesty and transparency and all that stuff but this is an example of i think a case where it's totally acceptable and even preferable uh to fake it because what's going to happen is you will you know there's a there's a line from someone i don't remember some philosopher says that the if you wear a mask for a while your face begins to adopt the shape of the mask now Generally, that 's used in a negative sense, right? If you're living an inauthentic life, if you're then you suffer you're you lose your identity somewhere but if're if your if you're inauthenticity, if we 're going to call it that, is an ambition to be better than you are, to be cooler than you are then i think it actually works you become cool you become better you become because what are you doing you're saying okay i'm jealous i'm insecure but i'm not going to let that show i'm going to be i'm i'm not going to treat these people badly i'm not going to snap at her i'm not going to ask her all those questions that i'm that are burning up inside me i'm going to control myself that's not really an authenticity that's you trying to get your shit together and so The question is, how do you deal with knowing that there are people who are superior to you in very tangible ways? Height. Well, being taller than someone else isn't superior. Income. Having more money than someone isn't superior. Power. That's not superior. Influence. That's not superior. None of those things are superior. And that's the key. Superior is being comfortable with yourself. That's superiority. So no matter how much money someone has, no matter how tall they are, no matter how hot their girlfriend is, no matter what car they're driving, no matter any of that shit, if you're keying into that shit, then you lose. That's the point. You're judging yourself against the thing that you already know you have less than. So you're the one who's beating yourself. Nobody else is beating you. I've known a lot of people who are richer than me. Almost everybody's richer than me. But were they superior to me? No. Nobody's superior to me. And nobody's superior to you. What You, you might look at me and say, oh, you know, you're the fucking podcast king or whatever the fuck you think I am. You're superior to me. How am I superior? Oh, You're fucking 21 years old, dude. You've got your whole life in front of you. You're much richer than me in time. And time is the only currency that can ever be replaced. Money can always be replaced. Everything can be replaced, but not time. So what am I going to do? Am I going to resent you because you're younger than me? What the fuck sense does that make? I mean, come on, most of my friends are better looking than me or taller than me or stronger than me or more famous than me or richer than me. Everybody has something I don't have. Normally, lots of things I don't have. But if I'm going to get all stressed about that, I'm going to waste my whole fucking life running around chasing my tail like a goddamn dog. Forget it, dude. That's, that's not the way to live your life. Running around stressing out about people who have more than you. Think about what you have. Think about what you want. Think about what you can give. You sound like a very inward, taking kind of person. My advice, stop thinking about what you're missing. Stop thinking about the things you don't have. Stop scrambling and hoarding. And uh, try to be more generous. Try to be happy for your friends who have things that you don't have because that's what makes you rich. I don't want a fucking boat, but I'll tell you what, I love having a friend who has a boat. I don't want a horse, but if I have a friend who has a horse, I get to ride it. That's great, and I don't have to fucking shovel its shit. You see, that's how—that's—that's that's richness, richness, wealth. True wealth is having friends that are beautiful and kind and powerful and wealthy in their own ways. And if you're the kind of person who resents that shit, then you're not going to be, you're not going to have anyone in your life like that. So instead of resenting it, cherish it, celebrate it, congratulate the people around you who have things that you don't have. Because then they'll share it with you and share the things that you don't, that you have that they don't have. And then you'll be happy. It's all, it's got to be a win-win. You're looking at a zero sum situation and that's, That's the wrong way to look at things, my friend. I've never contacted anyone with their own webpage before asking for advice, but I'm in a jam and need someone to tell it to me straight. I got a wee scenario cooking up in my life, which involves me, a straight woman, falling in love with my best friend, a gay man. Okay, straight woman falling in love with a gay man. We are very close, but I'm sexually attracted to him, and it is becoming apparent I should say something because I'm leading our friendship into new territory with my stupid love chemical brain. I was wondering what are your thoughts on having a relationship where one person is gay and has sex with all the men he wants, but staying in an intimate emotional connection with a female partner? This woman is writing from New Zealand. Hello, person from New Zealand. Uh, I don't see the problem here, uh, other than the fact that you describe this as falling in love. I don't see, what's the issue? I, you know, you're having a relationship where one person is gay, has sex with men, so you're not asking him not to be gay and not to have sex in the way he wants. But he's in an intimate emotional connection with a female partner. Is that enough for you? Or do you want this guy to suddenly become heterosexual and start banging you? Because that ain't going to happen. If all you want is the emotional connection and he's willing to have that connection with you, then I I don't see the problem. How is that different from just being very, very good friends with him? you call it falling in love. So maybe this is a question of definitions. Maybe you need to back off a little bit from the falling in love thing uh because you know as i've said on this podcast many times before the whole falling in love framing of things is about the loss of control, the falling. I'm falling in love uh and That loss of control implies an absence of responsibility. Now, you're an adult, I assume. And uh, as an adult, you should be assuming responsibility and trying not to create situations that are going to lead to difficulties for people, including yourself. So how about if you just don't call it falling in love? Don't think of it as falling in love. you're not falling in love, you know the guy's gay. You know he's never gonna, you know, be the man of your dreams unless the man of your dreams is off, you know, fucking other men of your dreams, and not you, in which case I guess he is the man of your dreams. I don't know, but are you the woman of his dreams? I don't think he's got women in his dreams. Not those kind of dreams anyway. So it sounds to me like you're trying to uh, you know, turn your beautiful Toyota pickup truck into a Maserati and it's not and there's nothing wrong with that Toyota pickup trucks are wonderful having a really close friendship with someone you can't have sex with is fantastic Uh, as I've, I've probably said on this podcast most of my very very best friends have been gay men and there's been a love there And there is a love there, a deep love, Um, but we can't have sex. There's attraction, at least in most of the cases, there was an attraction. I think, you know, obviously coming from them toward me, it's a sexual attraction that I didn't share. Um, But that energy uh, fed into the intimacy of our friendship in ways that were very um, beautiful so, I think the key is uh as in in many relationships, it's to recognize what it is and enjoy that, and don't try to turn it into something else. you know I think a lot of friendships a lot of things get messed up even even when there's not this sexual incompatibility, as in this case, you know, imagine you've got a friend uh you know you're a woman, you've got a friend, he's a man, it's great, you're really close, you're friends, you'd like spending time together, whatever. Uh, There's some sexual attraction. You guys have sex. That's cool. But, you know, you you don't feel like this is your, this is boyfriend. This is someone you want to introduce to your parents. This is someone you want to get old with, blah, blah, blah. But you start to feel like since you're hanging out so much and you're having sex that it should go that way. Right? You should become a couple because that's what happens when you're in this situation. Then you move in together. You should... You should, you should, you should. That's leading you into a fucking mess. Cause that's and it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with what you've got. It just means you're not recognizing what it is. You know? You've got a cat. Don't don't dress it up like a dog and tell it to sit. It won't work. You got a cat. Enjoy the cat. You know? You've got you've got something that's really nice. You've got a really nice Sexual friendship, enjoy that. Because I'll tell you what, a lot of people who are in a couple wish they had a sexual friendship like that. A sort of no strings attached, see you when I see you. When I don't see you, you're free to do what you do. I'm free to do what I... A lot of people would love that kind of situation. You've got it, and you're like sliding downstream trying to turn it into something else. So uh, my advice to you in New Zealand, if you're listening, is... Recognize what you've got. You've got a really good friend. You like him a lot. You feel really close to him. You have an intimacy with him. Hopefully he is feeling all these things as well. But that doesn't mean he's going to be your boyfriend. Don't try to make it that. If you've got a cat, you know, let it purr and you know scratch its chin. But don't tell it to sit because it's not going to listen. This song's called Someone New, and the band is Hozier. phone uh-huh. Seemed appropriate. Uh, here's one from Sweden. Good morning, doctor, and greetings from Sweden. Thanks for the podcast. My question is, what it means when Americans talk about fighting to protect their freedom? Uh, I read yesterday about a mother who pays eleven hundred bucks a month for health insurance, but still had to pay four thousand for her one-year-old daughter to be hospitalized for four days. Here in Sweden, I pay 26% tax on my monthly salary of about $4,000 as a full-time employed electrician for 40 hours a week. I also get five weeks paid holiday every year. Is it wrong to say that a lot of Americans really are not living the dream? It seems that America is definitely one of the best countries to live in for the people who have money, but it seems like a lot of people work two jobs and are just one serious illness away from financial meltdown. So my question is, would most Americans give up some of their freedoms to live under a system closer to the European model of social welfare? Also, what are those freedoms, and are Europeans missing out on them? I would also like to add that the system here is not in any way a utopian paradise The health service struggles to keep up with demand. However, I feel that I prefer to have a system where everyone has access to a pretty decent level of social welfare rather than one where people are able to fall out of the bottom of the net. Okay, Steve from Sweden. Uh, Yeah, I, you know, I've lived in, in Europe for 20 some years, so I can relate to what you're saying. The healthcare system in Spain is far from perfect, but it's available to everyone, and uh, it generally gets the job done. And I think this sort of circles back to uh, what I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast about the tolerance for ambiguity and how America is a much more rule-based society. I think that the the sort of historical narrative of the United States is that. Uh, because we don't have this overriding national identity of what it means to be an American, because the whole melting pot thing and all that, uh, it's the land of opportunity. So because it's the land of opportunity, it's easier to start a business here than it is almost anywhere else in the world. Um, And if you do have a good idea, if you've got something clever, you're probably going to be better off here than in any other country because if the idea doesn't work, you declare bankruptcy, the company goes under, and you start something else. Debt laws, bankruptcy laws are much uh, more stringent in, from what I know in European societies than they are in the United States. That whole, that whole sort of like, give it a shot, it doesn't work, you can try again thing Um is much harder in Europe than it is in the United States, with the exception of student loan debt. Student loan debt is never forgiven. So those of you who are going into debt for student loans, that will follow you to the grave probably, unless there's some sort of a you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren revolution in this country. Um, oh, we're going to take a break here. Let's take a break for something truly beautiful. See if you can hear this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you hear that? Now oh, there's this. Oh yeah. Beer. Gotta love beer. <clears throat> I'm drinking Stone Ripper. San Diego Pale Ale. All right. This podcast brought to you by Stone Ripper. San Diego Pale Ale. 5.7 alcohol volume. Uh so the the thing that in America is, if you make it, you can make it really, really big, and if you know, and then you like own the government and you get taxed at a lower rate, and there are all sorts of loopholes in the our incredibly complicated tax code that is set up that way specifically um, to give opportunities to rich people to pay accountants and lawyers to structure things so that they can pay a much lower tax rate than the working stiff. So, yeah, there's no question. If you're a regular person, you're better off in Europe. If you are a very wealthy person, you're better off in America. Uh, And the trick is, in America, the very wealthy have convinced the working normal people uh, to support a structure that screws them and we see it again and again and again we saw it with Reagan we saw it with Bush we see it uh right now with Donald Trump you know Donald Trump was elected by working scared sort of middle to lower class Americans and Trump was able to use the fear of immigrants and uh you know the sort of anger and animosity toward international globalization, which these people rightly recognize as having uh, undermined their well-being. Trump was able to key into that and uh, get their votes. And now what's he doing? He's turning around and screwing them, which is what happens again and again and again. And not just in America. That's a, you know, the history of class dynamic is that the wealthy will, uh, take control and screw the working class over and over and over again. That's just the way it works until the working class has nothing left to lose. And then there's a revolution. And then there's a period, uh, of more egalitarianism, uh, until things erode back to, uh, the sort of extremes that we're seeing now in the United States again and then the cycle goes over and over again. Now in Europe they've seen this enough times that in most European countries they're saying okay let's social welfare is saying no we need to keep a large middle class because only by keeping a large middle class can we avoid the sorts of um uprisings and blood in the streets that we've seen so many times in Europe, whether it be by uh, major wars or revolutions. The United States is a young country and uh, we haven't seen enough of that stuff. So we have to keep learning that lesson again and again and again. That's enough ranting for me. It's been an hour and a half, and I've got a beer to drink here. So I'm going to drink my beer, and I'm going to leave you. By the way, most of the music from this episode was courtesy of my friend Aaron, who's got fantastic taste in music. Uh, she's turned me on to a lot, of, a lot of new stuff that I really enjoy. Uh, this last song is called Roll the Bones, and it's by Shaky Graves. And I don't think Aaron turned me on to this. I think I turned Aaron on to this. But someone turned me on to this and I believe it was one of you. One of you lovely podcast listeners either sent me a link to this or told me to check it out. I don't remember. But anyway, whoever it was, thank you because I really dig this tune. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening to the podcast in general. Thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for supporting the podcast through Amazon.com. My... Link at chrisryanphd.com. Click on Amazon, takes you there, and they kick back some money our way. And also, those of you who have signed up on patreon.com to support Tangentially Speaking there, very much appreciate it. That's so cool to see. Warms my heart every time I see somebody new has signed up there. Even if it's a buck a month, that's totally cool, totally wonderful. You went through the trouble to sign up. And man, if everyone who listened to this podcast Signed up for a buck a month. I would be rolling in money. I'd be drinking crystal and smoking crack. I probably wouldn't be smoking crack or drinking crystal. You know what? I'd probably just be sitting here drinking Stone Ripper and smoking the occasional spleef just like I am now. Um, but I'd give it away. That's what I'd do. I'd give it away. Anyway, thank you so much for your attention and your love and your support and for spreading the good word. This is Roll the Bones by Shaky Graves. Hope you're having a good week.